You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How are we doing? Good. Merry Christmas to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So we are taking a break out of our series of the Gospel of Mark and uh, going to do a sermon this morning that uh, focuses on the Incarnation kind of the idea of the meaning of Christmas. So Luke chapter two, if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath every three or four seats. You should be able to find one. And so it would really serve you to have a Bible open and out on your lap this morning. And so if you can get to where you can see one, that would be a big help for you. So Luke chapter two is one place you need to be. And then Genesis chapter one, you need to have that uh, marked where you can get uh, to both of those places really easily. Luke chapter two and Genesis chapter one. So, um, in, in hearing people describe what is the meaning of Christmas, like what is the meaning of the incarnation, I've heard some pastors refer back to um, the Chronicles of Narnia to describe like what is the meaning and kind of give this description of what is the purpose of Christmas, the purpose of the incarnation. And so if you uh, know C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's seven books long. And in the second book, it's a book called The, uh, the Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, C.S. Lewis is describing what Narnia is like. And uh, it's under this, uh, this kind of curse slash spell of this white witch. So that as he describes it, that he describes it as it's always winter but never Christmas. Um, it is not good in Narnia when you uh, get into the line, which in the word of the second book. Things are not good and the future looks even worse. There is like a settled discouragement throughout the land of Narnia. Um, but then the people of Narnia hear that Aslan is on the move. And if you've read the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, you know that Aslan is kind of the Jesus-like person or Jesus-like figure in the, in the book. And so they, they learn that Aslan is on the move and they know that Aslan has come to like destroy the white ri- uh, the white which, and to reverse the curse of the spell that she has cast over Narnia. And Aslan on the move is signaled by a couple of things that they are seeing. And one of the things is that the snow that has settled over Narnia is beginning to melt. That the cold is beginning to break. For the first time, they are seeing the sun break through and punch through the clouds. And so they know that something is happening. And as C.S. Lewis describes this scene of winter beginning to break, he says that spring is in the air. And he's saying that when, when Aslan is on the move, it is associated with some things. It is associated with a new day dawning. Something is coming. Everything is about to change with Aslan being on the move. And if you want like a picture of what is, what is Christmas about? What is it signaling to the world? It is signaling that God is now on the move. In the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus, it is signaling that God is up to something. That he has come and he is on the move, reversing the curse of sin, all these effects of sin, that a new day is dawning and everything is about to change. Now that is exactly what the angel in Luke chapter 2 is announcing. In Luke chapter 2, the angel appears to some shepherds, these people keeping kind of the the flocks by night, right? And and the angel comes and announces this in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. That a new day is dawning. Something is happening. God is on the move. And and here's how the angel describes it. In verse 8, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flocks by night. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, 
Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that there will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, and this is going to be our kind of word for the day that I want to try to unpack, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the angel is announcing that God is on the move and God is on the move by sending this little baby into this manger. And it's going to be through this baby that good news and great joy is going to spread out to the entire world. And that this little baby is going to bring, and here's the word, peace. Peace. Now that word peace um, in, the, in the scriptures is a pregnant word. It, it, there, it's robust. It is multi-layered. There is a lot to that little word peace. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want to take the question, what is Christmas about? And, and then I want to lift up this theme of peace that runs throughout the scriptures and allow this theme of peace to address and answer. This announcement that the angel gives of peace, for, for that word peace to answer the question, what, what is the incarnation about? What is God up to in sending Jesus? What is he doing? Peace is our way of answering it this morning. So to answer that, we're going to have to go all the way back to Genesis 1. Right to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 is where we're going to start in answering this question. What is Christmas about and what does peace mean? How, how are we going to see this theme of peace in the Bible? Genesis 1-1. First line of the Bible goes like this. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the first line of the Bible, we are introduced to God. And the rest of the Bible gives us some substance about what is this God like? What what are the attributes of this God? And one of the things we learn about God in the Bible is that he is triune. That God exists, he's one God, but this God exists in three persons. And each one of these persons are fully God. This is called the doctrine of the Trinity. That we have one God, Three persons, each one of those persons fully God. You get all all that little thing? Good luck with that, right? So one God, three persons, each person fully God. And, and, And the Bible also describes some of how this God interacts with one another, how this triune God interacts, the interpersonal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in summarizing that, a guy named Fred Sanders in his book on the Trinity called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything, he describes the inner workings of God, how this triune God interacts with one another. And listen to how he describes this. It's going to be on the screen for you. Listen to how he describes the inner workings of God that we see in the Bible. He describes it like this. In himself and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son and the unity of the Holy Spirit. And then listen to how he describes this triune God. He says, the boundless life. I love that description. This is how, this is what God is like. The boundless life that God lives in himself at home within, and I love this phrase, within the happy land of the Trinity. Above all worlds, talking about the Trinity, the inner workings of the Trinity, is perfect. It is complete, inexhaustibly full, and infinitely blessed. 
So in describing this triune God and how this triune God interacts with itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's saying that they live in perfect community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect community that is inexhaustibly full, overflowing with joy, boundless life. I I love that description, the happy land of the Trinity, that God is ultimately a happy being, infinitely happy. This is, this is God. And, this, and I love thinking about how the community of God works, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with one another. They're constantly like heaping praise on one another, exalting one another. C.S. Lewis even describes it like this, that when you think about the Trinity, it's almost like there's this divine dance going on. Where, where each of them are revolving around the other. And it's like the Father revolving around the Son. It's other-centered, revolving around the Son, and He's heaping praise on the Son. And the Son looks back at the Father and says, No, I'm going to glorify you. And the Holy Spirit looks at both of them and says, No, I'm going to glorify you both. This is this inner workings of God, this boundless life. And this is what we see in the opening pages of the Scripture. We're introduced to this God of boundless life. And here's what we have going on. In the opening line of the scripture, this God begins to bubble up. This boundless life begins to bubble up and it overflows and it spills out onto creation. And so now this this boundless life is now creating. And, And so this perfect God who is inexhaustibly full creates this perfect creation that is inexhaustibly full. And then you get to the end of chapter one and he creates man and woman. And he puts man and woman into this garden and life is rich. Life is robust. I love what he says seven times in chapter one of Genesis that life is good. This creation is good. What he has made is perfectly good. Now, what does it mean when God is saying, looking at his creation saying it's perfectly good? What does he mean by that? Now, just think with me about what we're seeing about life in Genesis one and two. Man and woman in the garden, in God's creation of Genesis 1 and 2. We are seeing in Genesis 1 and 2 that man is at peace with creation. That man is at perfect peace with creation. That the creation is not working against man, but creation is working with man. Like in Genesis 1 and 2, there is a gentle breeze, but there are no hurricanes, right? That there are waves that, that sound great in Genesis 1 and 2, but there's no tsunamis, Right, our man Adam, um, he is a gardener. And in Genesis 1 and 2, creation is actually working with him to garden. And if you've ever tried gardening, you know that is not the way it is now, right? See, for, for Adam, he could just put like a seed in the ground. He's got no thorns and thistles to deal with, right? He's got no droughts to deal with. He's got no bugs to deal with. He can, he can set the little seed in the ground and up pops a perfect pepper plant with perfect peppers. I mean, that's the way to garden right there, isn't it? But creation is working with him. There are huge animals in Genesis 1 and 2. But like literally, Adam could have been walking through the Serengeti without any fear. No fear of any predator is going to come and kill him. Creation and and man, they're at peace with one another. But, But it's not just man is at peace with creation and creation is working with man. It's man and man are are in like harmony with one another. That there is there is peace between man and other human beings. So just think of it. This is what we see in in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve are married. Now check this out. Can you believe this? In Genesis 1 and 2, there are no arguments in their marriage. How about that, huh? There are no like sharp words spoken back. There are no like belittling moments in their marriage. There is no selfishness in their marriage. There's no envy in their marriage. There's none of that. They are like perfectly living out Philippians 2. That they are considering the needs of the other above their own. 
There's plenty of ambition in Genesis 1 and 2, but there is no such thing as selfish ambition yet. Genesis 1 and 2, you've got man relating to man in a perfect way. They are at perfect peace with one another. Everything is working rightly. But it's not just man that's, that's in, you know, at peace with creation. It's not just man at peace with other human beings. It's also, and most importantly, man at peace with God. This is the picture of Genesis 1 and 2. You've got God and he's walking in the garden with man. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to stress kind of how the Trinity works in this triune God of the scriptures is just to be able to say that at the end of the day, God didn't create us because he needed us. He had everything he needed within the triune God. Everything he needed was there within the inner workings of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So part of what that teaches us is that God didn't create us or didn't create us because he needed us. He created us to be able to offer something to us to give us something, namely an invitation into the dance, an invitation into life with him, this boundless life of the Trinity. And here's the most amazing thing about Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve are getting to live there. They're getting to live with God in the happy land of the Trinity, with God and with, with inexhaustible life and joy. This is this is the picture of Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to think about Genesis 1 and 2, you might could think of it this way. That it's the creation of shalom. Shalom. This is what we have in Genesis 1 and 2. God creating shalom. Now, we've got to do a little bit of work on what this idea of shalom means. So it, it's the Hebrew word for peace. Like, so in, in our English Bible, that Hebrew word shalom is, is most often going to be translated peace. But I like how one guy um, expressed it. Our English word for peace can't bench press the weight of shalom, right? Our English word does not carry all the weight and the robustness of that word shalom. It just doesn't do it. Like when we think of the word peace, we most often would probably think of something like a ceasefire between two people, something like that, right? Or, or maybe like an inner calmness. But in the Bible, this word shalom is much more multifaceted and multilayered than that. It's got this idea kind of at its root of being absolutely uninjured, of being whole, undivided, like this idea of universal flourishing. I want you to listen to a guy named Cornelius Plantinga describe this. He's a theologian and dean of a seminary. Listen to how he describes shalom, this idea of peace in the Bible. He describes it like this. What is shalom? It's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation. This is going to be on the screen for you. All creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. So it's this weaving and webbing together of all of these things in perfect harmony. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. And I love this last line. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's peace in the Bible. It's the way things ought to be. 
So you've got this idea of universal flourishing. You've got this idea of wholeness and delight. Shalom is what life would be like when you take everything bad, namely sin, out of it, and you put everything good back into it. This is shalom in the Bible. It's life without like the parasite of sin attached to it without the corruption of sin that so easily distorts life and the pollution of sin that stains life. This is shalom. It's this interweaving of of man and and God and creation into this perfect web of relationships. I I like how um, one pastor describes it. He uses a a piece of fabric to, to illustrate shalom. So if you think about what a piece of fabric is, it would be like thousands and thousands of pieces of thread that have been interwoven with one another. So so these threads that form a piece of fabric, these threads have been laced under and over and under and over and around and in one another. And that creates fabric. If you just throw thousands of thread onto a piece of table, you don't have fabric yet. You just have thousands of pieces of thread thrown on the table, right? But when you start to interweave those things, where now they're supporting one another, they're interwoven around one another, then you get beautiful fabric. And he's saying that's the picture of shalom. In in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, you have got creation that is woven together. It's under, like God, man, create, all these things are woven in and around one another. Everything exists in a perfectly right relationship where everything is flourishing. Everything is going as God intended it to go. Everything is working perfectly in in God's design for it. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Now, the sad thing about the Bible is that lasts all of two chapters, right? That's when you get to Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis 1 and 2, we have this creation of shalom, this universal flourishing. Everything is as it should be in life. Genesis 1 and 2. And then you get to verse 3, and it starts on an ominous note. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent. Anytime you see that word serpent in the Bible, you know bad things are on the horizon, right? So the serpent, Satan, he comes to Adam and Eve, and he begins to cast a shadow of doubt over the goodness of God. Are you serious that God really told you not to eat of that tree? Why would God do that? God is holding out on you. This is the shadow that he cast over the goodness of God to Adam and Eve. And they could not resist um, the temptation. They took the forbidden fruit. They took their bite. And in that moment, in Genesis chapter 3, of them taking that bite of the forbidden fruit, sin was introduced into creation And shalom, in that moment, with the introduction of of sin, shalom was shattered. Most catastrophic moment in the history of the human race, Genesis chapter 3, the shattering of shalom. So if you think about, if you think about shalom as this fabric, perfectly interwoven, everything in right relationship to one another, what happens in Genesis 3 is those fabrics, those threads begin to get pulled out of the fabric and every part of that piece of fabric is now fraying. This is life in Genesis 3. Every part of the fabric, this interconnectedness, this fabric full of these vibrant relationships that are interwoven and interdependent upon one another, those threads begin to burst and weaken and rupture. This is why one of my favorite definitions of sin is the vandalism of, of shalom. This is what sin does. It not only offends God, but it breaks what God has made. It's the vandalism of shalom. 
All of these bonds that tie man, creation, and God together now begin to rupture and burst. And if you want maybe an illustration of, of what shalom is, or what, what anti-shalom, the shattering of shalom looks like in life, do y'all remember the movie The Grand Canyon? It came out in the early 90s. It's got um, Danny Glover in it. So, so let me give you this one scene of this movie. Uh, this uh, immigration lawyer, he's wealthy, he's driving a really nice car, he's in traffic on the interstate, and a traffic jam happens. So he decides he's going to try to bypass the traffic jam, and so he pulls off and he starts weaving into these neighborhoods, and as he's weaving into these neighborhoods trying to bypass this traffic jam, he gets, you know, kind of in progressively worse and darker neighborhoods. And if you're watching the movie, you know exactly what's going to happen. He gets into the worst neighborhood and the worst street in that neighborhood and his car stalls, of course. And so uh, he calls a, a tow truck. And while he is waiting for the tow truck, uh, this group of kind of gangbangers surround his car. And it is about to go really bad for this guy. And about the time they are about to do their damage, uh, the tow, t- uh, tow truck driver, Danny Glover, he's Simon in the movie, he, he, he arrives on the scene. And just about the time they're about to rip this guy off, he starts to hook up the guy's car to his truck. He's about to pull the guy out. And you can predictably kind of expect these game beggars are not overly excited about this. They're, they're kind of, they have all these protests of what's going on here. And that's when Danny Glover grabs the leader of this gang and he kind of pulls him off to the side and he gives five sentences of great theology. Seriously. So here's what he says. He's got this guy, this game banger over to the side. And this is what he says. Man, this world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm, so, I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And welcome to life post-Genesis 3, Right? Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. Now, let me just tease out this shattering of shalom in three different directions. So so in Genesis 1 and 2, everything is as it should be. In Genesis 3 and on in the Bible, nothing is as it should be. Everything is broken. The fabric of creation is frayed in every direction. Let me just give you three of these directions. Number one. With the introduction of sin, you have got the rupture of our relationship with God. No longer are we relating to God rightly post-Genesis 3 and this first sin. So if you, if you know how it plays out, Adam and Eve, they, they eat the forbidden fruit. And then look at Genesis 3 verse 8. God comes after them, pursuing them, even in the midst of their sin. He, he comes to them and look at their response to God after their sin. It says this in Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And here's their response. Here's God, and now what are they going to do after they sinned? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. 
after our sin, after our first parents sinned against God, rather than running to God and enjoying life with God in the happy land of the Trinity. Now, after that first sin, rather than running to God, our first parents ran from God. They rebelled against God. They hid from God. But this isn't just like a one-way street. It's not just our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and us now running from God. It is also God because he is just doing something against our sin. He is responding to our sin. And this is what you see at the end of Genesis 3. So if you kind of keep reading along in Genesis, uh, God curses the serpent, he curses the woman, and he curses the man. And then this is what he does in Genesis 3, uh, verse 23 and 24. This is God's ultimate response to our sin. It says this in Genesis 3, 24, or 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, sent, sent Adam and Eve, our first parents. He sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Are you seeing what's happening there? It's not just that sinful man is hiding and running and rebelling from God. It is now that God has taken sinful man, and he has driven him out of his presence. Now, just contrast that with Genesis 1 and 2. Isn't it amazing how quickly the tables turn? In Genesis 1 and 2, our first parents, Adam and Eve, are experiencing life with God. They are at peace with God. Everything is as it should be between them and God. They are fully reconciled to God. They are woven into the fabric of creation with God. And then one sin later and one chapter later, they are now banished from his presence. It's unbelievable. And not only banished from his presence, but now they are living under the curse and condemnation of God. Because God is just, he has to, to have this just response of wrath for sin. And so now they are living under the curse and condemnation of sin. To the point that Romans 5, in just summary of our relationship with God, Romans 5 says it this way. That in light of our sin, we have drawn a sand in the line and we have put God over there and us on this side. And we have declared war against God and now we are at odds with God. We are enemies of God, according to Romans 5. That, that is the picture of, of our relationship with God, this fabric rupturing. And when that relationship with God breaks, here's the sad story of the rest of creation. Everything else breaks with it, doesn't it? Everything else breaks along with this relationship with God rupturing. So now it's not just our relationship with God that is ruptured. We've now got the rupturing of our relationship with others. So it's not just with God. Now it's with other people. We, we were at peace with other people, but now it, with the introduction of this sin, all of our like, you know, human to human relationships are now flawed and now they're all hard and difficult. It's ruptured. So if you know how it goes um, forward in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve they eat the forbidden fruit. God comes after them. They're hiding from God. And when God confronts Adam in his sin, do you remember what Adam says to God? He looks at his wife and he says, God, it's her fault. It is her fault. And we've got a lot of that going on today, don't we? When things start going bad, it's their fault. They're the one that made me do it. So, so here's what you have going on right after the first sin. Man starts throwing man under the bus. They start turning on each other. And the classic Old Testament kind of picture of this is one chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, if you want to turn there. In Genesis chapter four, you've got the classic Old Testament text on how human beings are now at war with other human beings. Cain and Abel, who are Adam and Eve's sons, they go to present sacrifices to God. 
Abel presents his sacrifice to God, and God says, I'm pleased with yours, Abel. And Cain goes to present his to God, and God says, I'm not pleased with yours, Cain. And in a moment of rage and envy and jealousy, you have Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I want you to picture for a second you reading the Bible for the very first time. And you open up to Genesis 1-1 and you see God and this triune God that's bubbling up with life and joy that's inexhaustibly full spills out onto creation and creation is perfect and everything is going so well. And then all of a sudden, three chapters in, you've got the first sin. And then the fourth chapter in, you've got a brother that kills his own brother. Can you, can you just feel how shocking that would be when you're reading the Bible for the first time and seeing that? It's unbelievable. The classic New Testament, te- or kind of the New Testament picture for this rupturing of human relationships would be the Jew-Gentile distinction. You've got Jews and Gentiles who absolutely hate one another. Listen to William Barclay describe the, uh, the, the sort of the view that the, Gen- or the Jews had of the Gentiles. Here's how he described it. This will be on the screen for you. He said it this way. The Jew uh, had an immense contempt for the Gentile. Immense. The Gentiles, uh, said uh, the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now that's hating someone right there, isn't it? I mean, that's like hate to a new level of hate. To go on here. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in, in uh, her hour of sorest need. In other words, in labor. Why? In the mind of a Jew, here's why. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Now that's a lot of contempt there, isn't it? Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the funeral of that Jewish boy was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. See, that is a picture of the rupturing relationships that happened post-Genesis 3. And listen, it's not just those pictures in the Bible. Every page of Scripture is soaked with the rupturing of human relationships. If you just keep reading in the story of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, you've got Noah who is disrespected by one of his sons. Later on in Genesis, you've got Jacob and Esau, two brothers, and Jacob deceives his brother Esau. Later on in Genesis, you've got Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph? You've got his, um, his brothers who have plotted his, his death, but instead settled, uh, just kind of selling him into slavery. That was going to be the consolation prize of their plan. You, you've got the, 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 the scriptures. Maybe you can think of just the scriptures like this. It is soaked with the ruptured relationship, the blood of relational kind of rupturing on every page of the Bible. It just is laced throughout it. Post-Genesis 3, people don't get along very well. Amen? There's this rupturing of relationships. But it's not just between us and God, post-Genesis 3. And it's not just between us and other human beings, post-Genesis 3. We also have the rupturing of our relationship with creation. It is now no longer working well between us and creation. So Romans 8, Paul describes it like this. Since since, uh, Genesis 3, the creation was subjected to futility. This is the picture we see in Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 17. In Genesis three seventeen, God is pronouncing the curse over Adam. And this is how the curse sounds from God to Adam. 
And I want you just to, to pay attention to when you're reading this with me of, of how creation is affected by this first sin. So Genesis 3, 17. And to Adam, he, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here's, here's the effect. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, but here's how you're gonna eat them, by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here's what we see in Genesis 3 that now creation is no longer working with Adam and Eve, with humanity. It is now working against humanity. Now for the first time, you don't just have a gentle breeze. Now you have that gentle breeze that can turn on a dime into a tornado and kill everyone, right? You, you don't just have gentle waves. Now you have tsunamis. You don't just have pets, you know, as animals now. Now Adam could not walk through the Serengeti and it'd be okay. Now you've got lions who have turned into apex predators who will eat you without a strand of remorse, right? This is how creation now is at war against humanity. It's not working together anymore. Our man Adam is still a gardener in Genesis 3. But now it's going to be a lot more difficult to garden, isn't it? Now you've got thorns and thistles and weeds to compete with. Now things are not that easy. Now it's much more difficult for Adam to do his thing. And it's just showing us that life now, post-Genesis 3, in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of our relationship with other human beings, and in, term of our, in terms of our relationship with creation, life now is not the way it is supposed to be. That's the point. It is no longer the way it's supposed to be. Shalom has been absolutely shattered. And here's the truth for every one of us sitting in this room. We'll just kind of bring this down to street level into our lives. Every one of us know that, don't we? That life is not the way it's supposed to be. Like every one of us do. And the reason we all know that deep down in our soul is because we're all created in the image of God and we all have Genesis 1 and 2 stamped somewhere deep in our soul. We all have the faint whispers of Genesis 1 and 2, the way things should be stamped into us. And because we know deep down in our soul the way things should be, we're all acutely aware that right now the way things are, are not the way they should be. Now, I just want to give you a sampling of the last year in our church family's life. So this is just within our Stonegate church family. I just want to give you a sampling of some of how life is not the way it's supposed to be. How that, that echo of Genesis 1 and 2 screams to us, life should not be like this. I want to just give you a sample over the last year, 2013, some of what has gone on within our church family. Let me just give you a sampling here. Within our church family, we've buried a newborn this year. We've experienced numerous miscarriages. Some have walked through the valley of infertility. Others, the difficulty of a cancer diagnosis. Others have just the, the dark and long struggle with depression others a loss of health, others loss of jobs. This year in 2013, we've seen marriages badly broken, some marriages absolutely abandoned. We have seen adultery. We've seen addiction of almost every kind. We've seen pornography. We've seen financial strains. We've seen the struggle of same gender attraction. We've had longtime friends parting ways angrily in the flesh without any sort of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
We've had teenagers rebelling against the authority of their parents. And, and this year in 2013, we've had two men connected to our church family murdered. And all of that is just the whisper in light of Genesis 1 and 2 being stamped in our soul. All of that is whispering to us, listen, this world is not the way it is supposed to be. It is not. Shalom has been shattered. And, and all of those examples have not, like they didn't, they didn't even factor in the low-grade sort of problems and pains that we all have, right? I mean, the low-grade stuff, like if you're like post-35, your body's going downhill, right? Like I'm starting to just like, I sleep and I wake up and things are wrong. I don't even know how that's possible. So, so we all had these low-grade pains and problems. I mean, just yesterday, it was really interesting. In light of me kind of thinking through this idea of shalom and how shalom is shattered, this, this whole thing playing out, I had our kids out in the front yard, and we were just playing. And it was a great time. Um, so all three of them were out there. Hannah had her little scooter. I mean, she was buzzing in the street, in the sidewalk, all over the place. And kind of her normal little route would be to start at the top of our uh, driveway. And our dri- driveway slants downhill. So she gets at the top. And I mean, she's just flying by the time she gets down to the bottom. And then she'd have to turn it onto the road. And, and about the fourth time she did it, as she was turning onto the road, flying down the driveway, turning onto the road, her little shalom got shattered right here in this moment. As she just, I mean, it was crash and burn central. Bad news on the road. She had shorts on. And so she instantly looked down at her legs and she's got cuts all over her knees and down her legs. She instantly bust out crying. And it was just so amazing to me to watch this. In one moment, it felt like this to me. Life is so nice right here in this moment. And then literally, Two seconds later, shalom, just the, the recalibrating and re-aligning like, to the fact that shalom has shattered. You've got a little girl crying in your arms in pain. And isn't life a mixed bag like that? Like one moment it can feel like, man, this is it. Life is working like it's supposed to be. And then the effects of shalom shattered break into your life. And so in light of that, Genesis 1 and 2, you've got the creation of peace, of shalom. Post-Genesis 3, you've got the shattering of shalom. In light of that, one of the biggest questions of the Bible is what is going to remedy this problem? What is going to set this thing straight? What is going to be the solution to this sickness of, of a shalom being shattered? What is going to, what's going to fix this thing? And that is the burden of Christmas, by the way. Of what is going to fix this? What is God's remedy for this? And if you want to look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is soaked. I mean, absolutely soaked with this eager expectation that in some way and someday God is going to set this thing right. That some way, someday God is going to fix what's been broken. And the question is, how is he going to do that? There's this expectation of it all throughout the Old Testament that there will be a day when God remedies this thing. And and I love how Cornelius planting it, how he describes kind of this eager expectation. Listen to how he describes it here. This will be on the screen for you. How he's summarizing the hopes of the prophets in the Old Testament. This eager expectation that there is going to be a day where God remedies this thing. Listen to his description. Here's the hope of the Old Testament. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They were dreaming of it. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. 
They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower and the mountains would run with wine. Weeping would cease and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work in fruitful labor. They dreamed of a time when lambs could lie down with the lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk to God, and lean toward God and delight in God. That was the dream of the Old Testament prophets. Can I just tell you, for every person in this room, it's the dream of every human heart that God will one day do that. That God will one day fix this broken world. And the question of the Bible that Christmas answers is how is God going to do that? How in the world is God going to, how is he going to fix this broken thing? How is he going to put this thing back together? And this is the answer that the angel gives in Luke chapter 2. I want to read it for you one more time. How is God going to fix this thing? Here is the angel's answer. Luke 2 verse verse 8. Luke 2, verse 8. Here is the answer as to how God is going to fix it. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, announcing, what is God's remedy for sin? That this sin-cursed world, what is God's remedy to fix this place? And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of the remedy. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Redeemer, a Rescuer, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, here's the solution. Here's what this baby is going to bring. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Problem. Shalom has been shattered. What's the solution? God is going to insert his son, Jesus Christ, into the womb of a teenage girl. That girl is going to give birth in a manger to a baby. His name's going to be Jesus. And that Jesus is going to be called the Prince of Peace. And he is going to come back and here's his job. Here's what Jesus is going to do. He is going to reestablish and recreate Shalom. He's going to be the one who brings peace. That is the good news of Christmas. It's God's announcement that I have an agenda. And my agenda is to reestablish peace, the shalom that was lost in Genesis 3. I have an agenda to start that. I have an agenda to begin the process of renewing this thing that is broken. If you were to think about Christmas, think of it this way. Christmas, the incarnation. It is the beachhead of God's campaign to reestablish shalom. That's what Christmas is. It is the beachhead of God's campaign to do away with sin and its effects, to do away with sickness, to do away with disease and death. It's the beachhead of God's campaign against all of that to reestablish peace, to bring shalom back to this world. That's what it's about. And this is what Colossians chapter 1 announces to us. In light of this peace that Jesus brings, listen to how Paul sums it up in Colossians 1. 
If you want the message of Christmas in a nutshell, here it is. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through this man Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. See, one of, the, one of the problems that a lot of pastors have when it comes to Christmas is they disconnect the cradle from the cross. And they were never meant to be disconnected. The cradle is always connected to the cross. If you know the storyline of the Bible, it doesn't stop with Jesus in a manger. That Jesus called the Prince of Peace grows up into a man. And he lives a perfect life in place of our very imperfect life. And he dies on the cross for our sin. All of the world's anti-shalom, shalom being shattered, all of the, the sin of the world, the, the curse of sin, all of that is stacked onto Jesus, put on Jesus, and it crushes him to death for our sin. He, he's crushed. He dies on the cross. He's buried in a tomb, and he raises from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death, and showing that God has... God has won the decisive victory to to reestablish shalom. This is what it's showing. This is the storyline of the Bible. And Paul is saying in Colossians 1, here is the effects of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All things are being reconciled to God. All things. For, For those in Christ, here's the great news of Christmas. You can be reconciled to God through Jesus. It's the great news that you can actually be back into right relationship with God. You do not have to live under the curse of your sin any longer. That Jesus has come to reverse that curse, to make a way back. If you want to think about it in terms of Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus has come to make a way back into the garden with God, to make a way back into peace with God, to make a way back into the shalom of God, to make a way back into life within the Trinity, the boundless life overflowing with joy. Jesus has come to make a way for you and I back into that. See, Christmas has both good and bad news associated with it. Here's the bad news. The bad news of Christmas is it's showing you that the problem of your sin is so deep and so dark, you can never climb out of that problem to God. You can never do it. But the good news of Christmas is this. God loves you enough that he was willing to climb into the darkness and depth of your sin to rescue you from it. Welcome to the good news of Christmas, that Jesus was willing to enter into the mess of your life so that he could reestablish shalom, so that he could bring you back into right relationship with God. And if you know kind of from the cross, the storyline of the Bible, here's what we know. That the first thing the cross does is reconcile us to God, and then the, the effects of the cross reach into every other arena of our life. The effects of the cross reach into how we relate to other people, restoring relationship with human beings. It reaches into how we relate to creation, restoring how we interact with the fabric of how we interact with, with, with the creation, with the created order, with animals, with plants, with all of these things. It affects all of that. But here's the great news of Christmas as we look forward. We know this, that what started 2,000 years ago on the cross, this, this campaign to reestablish shalom, what started 2,000 years ago on the cross will ultimately be finished when Jesus splits the sky and comes back for his bride. Amen? In that day, here's what Isaiah predicts. Here's what Isaiah sees in that moment where the Prince of Peace comes back. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. It'll be on the screen for you. 
And that day that the prince of priests comes back reigning, here's what he sees. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine that? A little child leading a lion. How does that happen? Verse seven, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy, hab- uh, uh, holy mountain, God says. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is coming as a child and dying on the cross is the beginning of God's campaign to restore shalom. And when God comes back in the form of Jesus one day, he's going to fully complete it. Let me finish with these words from one of my favorite pastors. He says it this way. For those who have found forgiveness of sins in Christ, there will one day be no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, no more division, and no more tension. That's on the horizon for everyone in Christ. The pardoned children of God will work and worship in a perfectly renewed earth without the interference of sin. We who believe the gospel will enjoy sinless hearts and minds along with disease-free bodies. All that causes us pain and discomfort will be destroyed and we will live forever. I love these last two lines. We'll finally be able to enjoy what is most enjoyable, namely God, with unbounded energy and passion forever. Christmas is the celebration of this process of restoration begun and the promise that it will one day be completed. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.